right, it's Dr. K. And here. Valerie J. And Jasmine. And welcome to Black Women Voices. Greetings and welcome back to Black Women Voices Podcast. Today we have a very special guest with us, Ms. Courtney B. Morris. Courtney B. Morris is a student in the Educational Leadership PhD program at Central Michigan University. At Central Michigan University, Courtney has served as a student affairs practitioner in several capacities at institutions including Eastern Michigan University, Wayne State University, Washtenaw County Intermediate School District, and River Road School District. Her research interests include P-16 educational experiences for urban students, college access, and influences of hip-hop culture for African-American students. We are so excited that you all have tuned in today as we have an amazing guest. We're talking about navigating uh, predominantly white institution um, spaces, historically white institution spaces, and what that does and what that means to us as Black identified women. So today, um, our guest we have is Courtney B. Morris that's talking to us um, about this outstanding topic. So we have a couple of questions. We just um, are going to have some conversations. So the first question we have is what factors um, played a role in pursuing a career at a PWI or MSI? So um, just as a disclaimer, I am going to be very authentic and very true in my answers, which means that I might be a little long-winded. I tend to be um, a storyteller. But to get to the question, um, I kind of stumbled upon pursuing a career at a PWI. Um, basically, when I graduated from high school, I graduated bottom of my class as far as ranking, didn't get any scholarship money, um, which meant that I didn't have much opportunities to apply to all of the, the colleges that I really wanted to go to, right, which included those HBCUs. So um, instead, I just enrolled into a two-year college. And I signed up for some courses and I just showed up on the first day and that was the start of my college career. Um, once I did my two, two years at the community college, I then transferred to a PWI, which was right down the road um, from my, my city, Detroit, Michigan, and the community college that I started at. And that's where I got that, they call it, you know, a taste of the Kool-Aid, the higher ed Kool-Aid, right? So I worked as an undergrad student um, in the Center for Multicultural Affairs that was housed under the Community Involvement and Diversity Department on campus. And that was just the, the foundation to everything that led to pursuing a career period in higher education. Um, so I would say that that was probably the biggest factor, being educated at a predominantly white institution. Your choice stand up, right? Right, 313. <laughs> everybody. Literally awesome. Awesome. <laughs> Tell us yes. a little bit about who you are. Cool. So my name is Courtney B. Um, and I am from, as we already know, Detroit, Michigan. I wear that very proudly. Um, I am entering into my second year of my PhD program in educational leadership at Central Michigan University. Um, I graduated with my master's degree in higher ed at Eastern Michigan University, and I obtained my associate's degree at Schoolcraft College. Um, most of my higher ed work has been in transitional work, working with high school students, preparing them to go into college or any kind of skill trades that they may be interested in. Um, I worked or have done a lot of work um, in a predominantly black school district that is about 98% free and reduced lunch. So we're working with some students who most times, not all the time, are coming from circumstances and situations that um, the society are already kind of counting them out the game, which means that we have to show up for those students a little bit um, harder and make sure that we put in an extra mile to get them where they need to be. Um, I will be starting a research assistant position in the next few weeks, and um, I have held past positions at multiple universities in Michigan, including Eastern Michigan and Wayne State with their engineering college. Oh, you out here doing it. Trying. I'm trying. I'm trying. So, okay, so I have uh, I have attended all PWIs as a college student, 
as well as I work, I've only worked at PWIs. Mm -hmm. And so I know that there are some challenges that um, people of color, black women face. But what are some of the challenges that you've personally faced, you know, while working at a PWI or even I would, I would include like as a student as well. Mm -hmm. So I think one of the biggest challenges that kind of shows up, whether you're a student or a professional, is this thing called code switching, right? So me being from Detroit or for any Black identified person being from an urban area, we have our own sense of language, our own slang. Um, how we describe things using our words and our verbiage. Um, code switching for me has probably been one of the biggest challenges because I have had to learn a different language. Um, all of my K-12 education is in a Black school district. All of my K-12 teachers were Black. Um, and here I am, after I graduate from high school, I'm thrown into an environment where most of the people don't look like me nor do they talk or speak like me so I've learned very quickly coming from a household that kind of instilled a lot of these things that were happening in society I had to learn really really quickly how to code switch right so for a lot of my um, education journey and part of the beginning of my higher ed professionalism I was code switching until I got into my PhD program and I'm just like, I can't code switch anymore. I'm exhausted and it's too much going on and I got to choose my battles. And I'm tired of coming up in here like, hello, my name is Courtney. And yes, I'm here to work. Like, I just, I can't Can you explain that? Can you like unpack yeah. that a little bit? Because I think some people don't know especially if you never had to cold switch. Right. Some people can navigate these spaces and feel like either they don't have to or they don't. But what is that terminology? Like, what does that mean, cold switching? And how does that make you feel? Yeah, so for me, cold switching um, in layman's terms is coming from an environment where you look like the people who you speak with every day. And there is a sense of slang or a different set of words that you use to get to the same narrative or the same story. And to have to code switch means that you have to go into a different space with people who don't look like you and explain that same story using societal correct, as they say, quote unquote, um, ways of speaking. So for me, if I am greeting someone, my, my natural greet is, hey, what's up? Or, hey, y'all, what's going on? But when I'm walking into a PWI setting or a predominantly white setting, that, hey, what's up, y'all, changes to when I'm cold switching, hi, how are you? Or, hello, how's your day? And sometimes that, when you have to switch that, when you have to turn that light switch on and off, that gets hard, right? Because that's not my natural way of speaking. So now I have to go into a setting where I'm probably already slightly uncomfortable because I'm the only person that looks like me. Not only am I the only black person, I'm probably the only woman in a lot of spaces as well. Um, and now not only do am I faced with that, but I also have to change how I speak. So there have been situations where I have walked into spaces and People don't understand, non-Black identifying people don't understand what I'm saying um, when I'm not co-switching or I'm not using their, their quote-unquote correct language. Um, so I would say that that was probably one of the biggest challenges. Safe to say that I ain't co-switching no more. Hence, I, I ain't but that was the sense of me having to build confidence within myself to be comfortable enough to walk into these spaces and say to a group of white identifying people, what's up? Like, that's me. What's, what's up? And I'm okay with that now. But I haven't always been okay with that because society teaches you that you got to walk into these spaces mm -hmm. correctly. But like, really, like, what's correct English? Like, my English can't be correct either. So. You'll, you'll see when you write that dissertation. You're going to cold switch <laughs> then. <laughs> but put, put ain't in that dissertation if you want to. <laughs> you know what? If you have a chair, it's your chair. If your chair and your committee are like, be your authentic self, then they're going to gold stamp that thing. 
I'm gonna try to throw an eight in there somewhere. I got to. I, I want to know. I'll, let me know how it works. I might throw one in mine too. Okay. <laughs> so, Courtney, you kind of mentioned, you know, being black in a space of a predominantly white institution, and then also sometimes being the only woman. So, um, it's kind of like a double double handicap, right? So. When or do you think that navigating white spaces adds to our strength level as professionals or do you think that it hinders us as professionals? I'm all about perspective, right? right so that's right. one of my little things that I live by. For me personally, I think it strengthens, right? Mm-hmm. So the way that I, I look at all of this is the world is just not black, nor is the world just white. The world is made up of a combination of all different races and colors, all different backgrounds, all different ways of thinking. So for me to be able to navigate these different spaces, although it may be exhausting at times and it may be slightly painful, I think it does add a different layer of strength because it, it if I can get through this, then I know I can get through a lot of different other things. So for me, I would say that it adds the strength level as a professional. Um, it's, it's one thing to be able to walk into a space and show up your authentic self it's another thing to be able to walk into a space and show up your authentic self and be comfortable with that. And if you're comfortable walking into a space um, that may traditionally not be comfortable and you're okay with that, then I think you can pretty much get through a lot of different difficult professional situations or difficulties. So for me, I would say that it would add strength as a professional, but it's not easy. And that's the part where it's just like, you know, we have this this saying like, choose your battles. So is this a battle that everybody wants to choose? And if it is, how do you make sure that you're experiencing the best that you can without, I don't want to say without killing yourself, but without peeling back so many different layers that can become negative towards who you are and your identity. Right. So it's, it's a balance. Balance is key. Uh, It's a lot that goes on in these white spaces at PWIs, especially when you are the only woman of color, only black woman. And so all the black students are just drawn to you because of that. Yep. Um, Everything to them. Now, let's talk about support system, especially if it's only just you as a black Mm -hmm. woman or maybe two or three of you. What does that support look like and um, how are you creating spaces for support if you don't have it? Yeah. So for me, one of my biggest support systems or networks is the homies back at home, right? And they may not be in higher education or education period. They may not understand the advanced level of, you know, obtaining a master's degree or even attempting to do a PhD, but they do understand Blackness. And sometimes to understand Blackness and to be around people who understands Blackness is just enough for you to keep your momentum to keep going. So that's outside of the traditional campus setting or the work environment. Um, Within the work environment, I would say that I have done, I would say, a good job at finding allies and allies who don't always necessarily identify as being Black. Um, and these are people who are honest in their continuing to learn what this means to be Black and to show up in Black spaces. So these are people who are very, very quick to acknowledge that my struggle is not their struggle, and they understand that, but they are willing to listen and willing to provide resources in ways that can be helpful for me. Allyship and forming relationships with allies can get a little tricky because there's this distrust factor that comes into play, um, especially when you're talking about a work environment and things of that nature. But I have found some really, really good people who have, I would say, I have been able to add into my support system. And then I may be the only person of color or the only black woman in my department, but it's somewhere else on campus where there's a (laughs) black woman that exists. And um, going into my PhD program, that was a completely different university campus for me. 
Um, it's a very different surrounding area than what I'm used to. It's very rural, very, very rural. So it's literally in the middle of what I would consider cornfields. And the closest university, yeah, the closest university is Michigan State. And that's an hour down the road. And if you go the opposite way, the next closest university is 45 minutes, which is also located in a very rural area. So the closest city is Lansing, Michigan, which is an hour away. But there are Black people who live in the surrounding communities of this university that I'm attaining my PhD from. And I have held on to them very, very tight, very tight. I give them space to breathe because I understand being the only Black person, like you're the only Black professional and all the Black students are coming to you. So I understand that they need their space to breathe as well. But I have their contact information. I know where their office is located. And when I need to go knock on that door, after I feel like I've vetted through all of my options and everything like that, I go knock on their door and they're always there. I also lean on Black students as well. Undergraduate students, the reverse behind all of it. Um, They're the ones that are out on the ground protesting, um, demanding things from administration on campus. And I've also been able to learn from them. What I've noticed is that at PWIs, you are going to have more Black undergraduate students most times than you are going to have more Black graduate master's level or PhD students, at least in my experience. Hmm. So I've been hanging out with the undergrad students in the dining hall. And that has also been a support system for me as well. Do you, I just, so in terms of support system, do you all have like a black graduate student association or even like a sister to sister circle? So that's one of the things that I can say we cultivated at at my institutions. There was a graduate student, um, shout out to Tanisha, who literally said, I want to see other people. How can we get everybody together? And she found a faculty member and then they started this sister to sister circle, which is literally just somebody sending out a message every Monday. Maybe we get together and have conversations. So does anything like that exist, you know, in your on your campus? So um, at Central Michigan University, I'm like very new. I'm first year in. I have learned that there are some resources. They do have a Black graduate student org. Um, It's it's been hit or miss, but they do have those type of organizations. At Eastern Michigan University, where I did my undergrad and my master's, so I'm like eight years deep into being familiar with the campus, we actually, I was a part of the, the founding group that started the Black Graduate Student Association. So before we, which was 2016, even thought of this, it never existed. Um, but we had, I would say, Eastern is a little bit smaller than Central. So even though the amount of Black professionals were probably still the same, because the campus was smaller, it looked like it was more of us, um, we were a little bit more close. Um, so we had at Eastern a lot of different organizations, and a lot of the Black students at Eastern worked on campus. Um, diversity and community involvement on that campus was very, very strong. At the time when I was there, the director had been there probably about already six or seven years. So he was able to kind of lay the foundation for a lot of the gaps that were there before he arrived. And we were also able to help him with that as well. Um, At Eastern, I'm going back to Eastern because this is what I'm most familiar with as far as being a student. We did start an initiative called Sisterhood. It was geared more towards um, undergrad Black women um, but a lot of the Black grad students found themselves either volunteering or working through an assistantship with um, hours and things of that nature to also give back to the initiative. So that, too, formed its own organic way of a support system for Black women, particularly um, on a PWI campus. So I have a question. So kind of going back to something that you said earlier in terms of kind of these, um, you know, predominantly white institutions and, and, and the toxic space that they can often kind of embody. So what is it then, do you think, that makes the, that could make these institutions toxic? Is it in the walls? Is it in, you know, is it in the nails of it? Like, what do you think 
structurally? Because often I don't know that we, when we have these conversations, I also don't know that we have a conversation in terms of structure. So what do you think that it is that um, enables these institutions to continue to not only be this way, but to continue to be these institutions that are raced and or gendered toxic um, institutions? My observation would be that these are toxic spaces founded on policies, procedures, and rules and regulations that are rooted in racism. And that's just the, the short, the shortcut answer. I think a lot of it comes from the fact that not too long ago, Black people were not going to college. Not too long ago, we didn't have a right to be able to read. I mean, that's, you know, a little bit further back, but that's the truth. And these movements that the system, quote unquote, um, is still making is a, a direct effect of these toxic environments. So when you put, I'm the only black person in my cohort, by the way, um, the only person of color, we, so there's that. But when you put, when you're still making decisions rooted in policies that are founded on racism and discrimination, ageism, sexism, all of that, then, and no one is saying, hey, or I'm not going to say no one is saying, hey, but the narrative isn't being pushed that we really need to change this. This is really, really detrimental to what's going on for the small percentage of the students that are on campus. Because we're still making up at PWIs a smaller percentage of the overall student population. So I think a lot of times when administrators who most likely are older white men are making decisions, they're not thinking about the 10% of the black students. They're going to think about the 80% of the white students who are on campus. Right. So... I think that's what continues to to provide that toxic component to a lot of these spaces. You so going back to what you said about you know there was a time when us as blacks weren't allowed to read, had education, and so you know me working at the HBCU, I do this thing now. Uh, so you know when you go to NASPA, ACPA, when you present, you have to put in the land acknowledgement, mm-hmm. and I respect that. And I thought about it and I was like, ooh, when I start doing presentations at HBCUs, I'm going to put an HBCU acknowledgement. And so what I put in there is um, defining what an HBCU is and then kind of uh, when the HBCU that I'm working with was founded. And so I've done that twice now. And what's interesting, the last time I did it was with students. We recognize, or at least they recognize, um, that most of our institutions uh, were founded in the 1800s. But it wasn't until 1965 that our HBCUs were even acknowledged as a place of higher learning. And it was like, that's like 70 some years before you even thought that we could be competitive enough to be a place of higher learning. Yep. So wow. when you said that, that's when you said that's that, so that think about that again, like these PWIs have been here. And their policies, procedures, all of that is, is suited in racism, whatever they want to call it now. But when, even when we wanted to say, hey, we get what you're doing, we're going to create our own institutions, it took you 70 plus years to even acknowledge us. To acknowledge us. That's crazy. Well, just, just imagine, though, being on a predominantly white campus where it, we're still trying to get acknowledgement. Yes. As, pe- as, as, as people of color, as black, like we are still, I mean, there are some campuses, especially I, I've heard of some definitely in the South that like literally have, they're not working, but plantation style housing yes. on yes. the campus. How right. is yep. it walk past this on my campus? Right. Mm-hmm. That's, or, or the multi-technology on a whole nother place. Like the multi, the multicultural center or whatever is not even inside of campus. Listen. It's literally all. Listen. So, listen. I worked at this institution, this PWI, and it's a small PWI. But you had the campus, and you know, student center was in the center. Um, the residence halls was around. It was nice. And then I also worked in multicultural. And I was like, so where's our where's our space? You literally have to cross the street 
in a house, and not even that, it's right beside the police office. Shut up. I want you to know that my center is across the street. They built a new police station directly across the street from my, like, it's like catacorner to my, to, you know what, let me tell you why that's insult to injury. When I order food, because my address is not recognizable in Google, wow. on the left of me is another diversity resource center, and on the right of me is another building. They actually told me one time I was trying to order Panera that I needed to walk next door. No. they could not deliver to my address. Oh. I said, well, thank you, but we will not be ordering from you. Because that is ridiculous. You, you can't tell me that when, you, when I think of structure in terms of the physical spaces. Yes. Placed on campuses, it yeah. means something. You know, it, it's right. bigger. Well, and we can say that there's a historical significance, right? Because there is a history that support that you know that talks about why these why you know multi multicultural affairs and that those types of situations were far away. But we're 2019, so what's so what's really going on? I, I know of an institution right now. I'm not gonna name it. This in my head that yet like the institution is really serious about never moving that multicultural affairs it will forever stay there and, and why is that though? and they don't care does that have to do with the institution or with the administration i'm not you know um and granted this is this has nothing to, well not nothing but i'm just thinking in a sense of so i've worked a lot with high school students right and so um at some of the high schools that i work with they are of course now predominantly black and then historically they've been predominantly black to where if the high school you know administration feels as though the high school should be moved the alumni come back and say no you cannot so that's why i ask you know maybe with that specific one does it have anything to do with the alumni um who were there who may have given back as far as funds are concerned, I don't know. I don't, of course, I don't know the story. But I also know that there's also different sides to everything. So, because it, 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 it comes to who has the most power. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you're, right. you're right. I mean, I I think the institution that I'm thinking of, I do believe the alumni. A lot of the alumni are saying no. It's historical. Mm -hmm. You know, we demanded a space, we got a space. But I think the argument is missing that, okay, so, but what does it say? What message does it send that that space is not included? It gives another unintentional, maybe, I don't know, I, I believe everything's intentional. It, it conveys a message that you will not be a part of the system and that everything that you do will be outside of it, even though there is a histo historical significance. Like mm -hmm. if you look at the history significance of Harvard, uh, slaves built that, slaves worked it. So. Let's have a conversation about the history and historical trauma and what that does to folks. Like we can't be shocked when we see signs, Harvard so white and all of that. We can't be shocked that because we have to think about the history that goes history. in. And we have to acknowledge the history. And if I don't have that conversation at least 50 times daily, like it's not enough. I, and, and, I'm, and I'm sure Courtney, you probably, because you know, being you're, you're in Michigan, you know, yeah. and I think like having those conversations, and I'm originally from Indiana, having those conversations, like you can just say, you know what, we're trying to move forward. But before you go, okay, let's just take one, let's just jog a little bit back because you have to heal things. You, you, yeah. we, we've got to stop in this higher ed space thinking that you should just get over it. Well, you don't have to get over it because it's not your experience not necessarily. Yours. Well, and, and the truth of the matter, can we not act like buildings aren't still named after slave owners? Help me. Can we not have that conversation? And when you try to say, uh, as a student, I'm not comfortable staying in a dorm that this person not only owned us, but beat us. And we were allowed to read, to breathe, to exist. So why should I sleep in that residence hall? I think that's also it. another conversation. Yeah, this is, it's not right, but like Dr. K said, just going back to what she said, it's about power. Yep. Who has that power? Who has that yeah. power? Who has that power to make things happen? It's, you know, it, and unfortunately, it is happening, but it's almost as though, okay, well, these are the people that, they're the reason as to why this building even exists. So who are you, the student, to have a say-so on anything?
you know, so it, it's not, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's, it's not right. Unfortunately, it's like, that's what it is. But how do we, I don't know, I just feel like there are so many layers to uncover when and at what time will we actually be able to get to the, the root, mm -hmm. able to solve the, the issues and the problems that are happening on our predominantly white campuses with our black students, with our black faculty. But that's one of the questions. So I, I think that's one of our questions is about navigating those spaces and whether it really adds more strength to us. Like if you have to constantly, I mean, I mean, I guess the opposite um, argument can be made. Does it add more strength or does it um, complicate the trauma? Like which, or is it a both and? Because mm -hmm. I never went to an HBCU. Right. I can't imagine what that would feel like and how different that would be you know, for someone, you know, like myself to, to be in that space. Cause I've only, I've only been in these spaces. So I don't know. When I work with my high school students and we send them off to whatever universities or colleges that they decide to go to, we usually get um, a nice amount. Majority of them go to PWIs, but we also get a very nice handful of students that choose and get nice packaging and support to go to HBCUs. And what I will say is just by observation, when they come back, because they always come back and they always share their experiences and things like that, the students who go to HBCUs love their universities with pride. Like after year one, they're involved in all of these extracurricular activities. They have mentors. They love all of their friends and their classmates. It's a sense of pride that exists. And then I think about myself when I was an undergrad student, and I'm like, I probably went to one football game. Um, I probably went to a couple of different events. And if I did, it was probably because such and such was there or such and such worked the event on campus. And there wasn't really a sense of pride. I graduated and I'm just like, yes, I got my degree. Not yes, oh my gosh, I love my experience. But the ones who go to HBCUs, they are invested in a totally different level than those who go to PWI. The culture is definitely like, different. different. I'm mm -hmm. just like, I missed out on that. Like, I did. But I love that students are now, now, because when I graduated and I was with my, my class and we were deciding who, where everybody was going to college, a lot of us didn't go to PWI. I mean, a lot of us didn't go to HBCUs. They went to PWIs. But I'm glad now the students who are graduating from college, they are pro HBCU. They like, I don't want an application from Michigan State. I'm trying to go to Howard. Yeah. I don't want an application from University of Michigan. I'm trying to go to Spelman. And I respect that because I know that they're going to get a different sense of experience. The love is going to be different. Um, I, I feel comfortable generally sending them to these spaces because I know that they're going to be taken care of. And I can't always speak the same for the students that we send to PWI. And now, I get scary. Now, see, I didn't go to an HBCU but I've been working at one for the last eight years. Mm -hmm. um, so let's, I want to put that disclaimer out there. But what I will say is that working at an HBCU, that, that sense of pride even goes not from just from the students, but to the staff and faculty. So even though I never went to an HBCU, I feel like I am a member of North Carolina Agriculture and Technical State University's faculty and staff and I have that Aggie pride. And it's a, it's a beautiful thing. Uh, but just like any institution, we have our issues. Uh, but what I will say is that someone once told me, um, as I move up in higher ed, that you have to have different experiences at different institutions. Um, and I, HBCU was never on my radar, but I'm fortunate, I was fortunate enough to be working at the number one HBC. Okay. <laughs> oh, that's enough. That's enough. Put yourself on mute. <laughs> no, uh, but, but what's interesting is that even my mentees and my students at um, HBCUs that go there as undergrad and then go to a PWI um, as grad, and you hear the differences. And it's not that 
they didn't want to choose a HBCU for grad. It's just more so of what the school can offer me in terms of my academics. And I think a lot of times people miss that piece, especially when a, a black student says, I prefer to go to a Harvard versus a Howard. You know, it, it has nothing to do with me not wanting to be around black people. It's just that what I want to do in life, Harvard is gonna give me what I need, you know, um, at this very moment. And so those conversations um, need to be had. Um, we have the best HBCUs in the land. They're about, what, 105 now? Um, and it's, it's about preference at the end of the day, you know? Um, and it's about the connections you make, the sense of belonging. So even though you didn't attend one, Courtney, we're always hiring. You should be an HBCU recruiter. I can't Come on. Yeah. She done turned this answer into a... Oh, oh, what, oh, what, what is this? com? <laughs> <laughs> but I'm just saying, I think that we all should have different types of experiences. Definitely. And I'm, I'm, I'm excited about the fact that what I want to do long term, I have experience from a PWI private, a PWI public, uh, HBCU public, and working with private HBCUs. Um, so that when I get to wherever I'm going, I have different perspectives to look at and not just one. So, yeah, that's my spiel. <laughs> that's a good spiel. Yes, I like that. <laughs> well, but I have a question, though. So we've talked about the toxicity of these spaces and what it does. But how do you navigate those situations that trigger both a race and a gender type of a microaggression? Like, can you protect and how do you protect your physical and emotional and or spiritual wellness? Because all of that is weight and is heavy and it can affect high blood pressure. I mean, look at the statistics for black women and high blood pressure and heart disease and strokes, right? So how do you protect yourself when you get all of that weight put on you? So, I believe that self-care is the best care, but sometimes you got to do a little bit more than just self-care. Um, I have gotten to a place where I am a little bit, I'm more comfortable calling things out and I'm more comfortable making decisions for myself, even if it means, even if it's not what I planned. So I recently resigned from a position because it was the right fit. And my mental health as I was going through that process was the first time where I had to question my mental health. I was crying every other day. Mm. Um, I, was, I would drive on campus and have an anxiety attack. Wow. And what I would say is that the environment didn't do anything blatantly, but it was just the space. Like I'm a very, I'm a vibe type of person. I, I vibe things out. And if it's not the right vibe and you can't go, I gotta go. And I had to, it took me a year and I literally came up with every excuse in my head. of It's not them, it's me. It's not this, it's that. And I finally reached a level where I was just like, if I don't leave, then something is, is going to negatively affect me in a way that I cannot afford financially, mentally, physically, academically, I have to go. And yeah. the scary thing is that was the first time that I actually stepped, I saw myself stepping out on faith. I'm, I'm a planner. So if, I feel like if I'm going to leave one thing, I got to have the next thing lined up. And I didn't. I did not have it lined up. But I had to go. I just had to go. And I made sure that I left appropriately. Um, I made sure that I crossed all my T's and dotted all my I's. I left on good standards. If I ever needed to go back and reach out or collaborate for whatever we needed to do on campus, I could. But for my own personal sake, I had to leave. And sometimes we have to make uncomfortable decisions. And 
that's probably the scariest because you can't see you can't see what's ahead. That's um, that is, um no, go ahead, Jasmine. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Uh-uh. Go ahead. I, no, I just was gonna say like that is courageous. That is a very courageous move to leave something that, you know, to, to leave a space that is unhealthy for you. Mm-hmm. And I feel like sometimes as Black women, we just don't feel like we can do that. Whether it's because of finances, because of we got to take care of somebody else, we just find it difficult to make those decisions. You know, I think we could put it differently. If somebody told us that every day of your life, you are living in a space that you're breathing in toxic air or drinking toxic water, we would immediately say, this is not right. There we go. comes to our workspace, Mm. we are very much, you know, at ease, almost normalized with trauma and being in traumatic spaces. I I fully believe that, listen, if you're going to work in higher ed, you need to get you a good therapist. It's true. Um, I agree. Especially at a predominantly white institution. I you agree. Need to be a person of color, you have to. Yes. You need because you need to be able to say some stuff to somebody that is not gonna tell anybody. Yep. <laughs> you yep. know. Because you can't trust everybody. You can't but trust everybody. You cannot trust everyone at all. And that's also sad because I think that that exists heavily. And and uh, what's that saying? Um all skin folk ain't kin folk either. Zora Neal. Oh, well, boy, that's that. Listen, I I have that experience. That's oh, there's a testimony in that. That's oh, yeah. <laughs> we gonna write it. We gonna write it. I'm just saying, because you spoke about code switching, and I know you spoke about it in a in a space of being around uh, at predominantly white institutions, and I'm I'm thinking you were talking about white people. Mm-hmm. But code switching among black people, especially black women, is also a thing. That's real. That. Now, can y'all tell me more about that? Because I can honestly say that I don't have too much experience with with that. With what? Code switching amongst black women. I think that I have been in spaces where Mm -hmm. I haven't had to code switch with the black women that I'm around. I think you have to have an you have to have a sense of discernment with all people. Okay. And I don't, I don't know if this is um, if this is specific to just like a predominantly white institution. I just think that yeah, you you there is some code switching that happens because right. I mean when you're talking to people and you people talk, they're going to tell your business. You know, you you know, I always tell people if I tell you something, then that's between me and you, right? But everybody doesn't have that philosophy. And I think that we are also very trusting of one another to think that because we're in this space, that automatically that person is having the same experiences or that they even care. Well, because also there there is this idea that we they can there can't be two of us. There can't be that mm-hmm. I I can't make it and you can you can't make it. Cause I need to make it. And I feel like I tend to be, I get a lot of my friends say I'm kind of moonbeams and sprinkles and I'm one that I just want to be friends (laughs) with everybody. I just want to love on everybody. I want everybody to be my friend, but you know, I've been burned by our own people, both male and female, even though we know gender ain't binary, but that's not a podcast, but still, but it has been a, it has been a situation where I have to code switch cause I got to try to spirit by the spirit. So I don't know, you i don't know what your intentions are with the information that i'm going to give you so i'm going to treat you like we're strangers until i can get a read on you and then there's a level right so there's there's like where are you in your career Mm -hmm. right and i think that the closest you could exist if you are a person of color and maybe you are talking to somebody and maybe you're maybe at the director level and maybe you're talking to somebody who is a president or who is a vp Right. And so I think that there's also a, um, a, a differential in that way as well. I mean, I think that some of it is like res- out of respect and things like that. But, but you wouldn't go up to somebody who's a doctor and the president and say, hey, such and such, and just call them by their first name. Right. I think that you vet that first to see what that relationship is going to be like before you do that and not just make the assumption that we cool. But, but 
here's another example. We think about that. Like if I walk into a store and I see another black woman, I can't assume that she's going to be like, hey, girl, when she talks to me. That, that's an assumption that I make. Right. But it could not be the case. She she can come to me and speak a whole full another language and then we would not be any the wiser. And so I do feel like that that code switching, it exists amongst our community. It, it exists in a lot of other communities, too, especially in academia. Mm-hmm. That's real. And, and I say that because when, when I think about um, young black women coming into the profession and you think about mentoring, coaching and sponsorship, and what that looks like. And I've heard some black women say, you know, I try to reach out to black women that have been seasoned and I just don't get the same respect or level that I was hoping to get. And we got, you know, we have to do better, um, whatever that better looks like, but we have to start with ourselves first. And so for me, I've had people, you know, say, well, you know, you're a doctor now, so I have to come to you a certain way. And I'm like, same old Kelly from way back when. What are you talking about? I just got some credentials that may help you get to the space that you need to get to now. Right. Um, so it, it, one, it talks about who you are and understanding who you are and how you show up in spaces. This work we do, man, it's, mm, you know, I'm triggered by everything now. Yep, yep, yep. Now that's what it's like working at a PWI, being triggered yep. by everything. If did the air conditioning come on, what happened? You just be triggered, just triggered, walking around triggered. Right. You all, you always got to have your your guard up. When I first got to this university, I thought I was losing my mind because you will walk like we have streets that go in between the campus, and you will have to cross from one side of the street to the other side of the street, and it's cars, so you got to cross in front of cars. And the first couple of times, I'm like, nah, this can't be right. This can't be right. I'm just, you know, in my head, I'm just making something up. What I would notice is that as I was crossing the street, because I'm in a very, like I said, rural area. So this is probably the most red county area in the state. And I would walk across the street on campus, and I would notice what felt like cars were lifting a foot off of the brake as I was walking across the street. And I'm just like, this can't be, this is me. This is all me. I'm, I'm just triggered and I'm traumatized and I'm culture shocked. And this is just a lot of things going on at one time. This can't be me. And I would notice it every single time. So I started asking other black graduate students like, hey, did y'all notice like when y'all cross the street, like, does this happen to y'all? And they're like, I never paid attention to it. So after I kind of, you know, mentioned that to them, they would come to me and they would be like, wait. You were right. Like, that's real. And these are big old pickup trucks with tinted windows and Confederate flags hanging off the back of them. So my assumption wasn't coming from just like me just being in this fairy tale world. I'm just magically making up something. This was actually really, really true. But I had to test this out a few times before I was like, wait a minute, this is a real thing. So to be triggered is real. But I think a lot of times, that conversation goes missed. Or when I show up in class and I'm one of the only few of color and I'm exhausted because I've been on campus since nine o'clock and here I am for our 430 class and I didn't feel like I'm about to get ran over. I didn't feel like the the, the woman in the cab wasn't speaking to me, but she spoke to everybody else that was white. And, you know, I'm, I'm collecting all of these experiences. I'm always on edge. Literally, mm-hmm. then I have to sit in the classroom and have to re reboot my mind to have to get through four more hours of I might possibly be triggered because now I have to worry about what something may be said in class, whether intentional or not. That might also cause some type of trigger where I feel like I'm traumatized. And I can honestly say that that's real. And I didn't really experience that or I didn't re- recognize it fully. And so I got into a space where it really felt like I was really one of the only few. Mm. So it's deep. It's deep. So given that experience, what you just shared, um, how can Black women combat the fatigue, the exhaustion, the, you know, just the, the events and the things that happen that, 
our other counterparts may not see like how do they navigate that space like what advice would you have for them or thinking back on it what do you what advice do you wish that someone would have gave you in navigating those that space I think that we need to continue creating spaces like this to be able to have authentic conversations with other self-identifying Black women who are coming from different backgrounds, different states, and continue to push this narrative and put it out. Like, I think we do a good job probably talking around the table, but once we get up from that table, who else is hearing the conversation? Who else is hearing about it, right? So we got to make sure that if this, if this is the conversation amongst the five of us that, like this podcast would do, it reaches other people. And how do we keep collaborating? And I think that's the key to it. How do we keep collaborating? Because I think with enough collaboration will come comfort. And we just have to keep, and it's hard. I know it's hard, but we have to keep, having those conversations. That's the start. I think once we do that, I think we have to get over, like it was mentioned before, this, if I'm going to make it, you can't make it. We got to get over that. And we got to start loving on each other. Black love is real love, whether it's platonic, sisterly love, whatever. It's real. And the more we love on each other, whether it's as simple, you walking past another Black woman on campus and you ain't got to know her, but just a smile, dap it up, how how you doing, have a great day. Those little things matter. They really do. So I think with those two, I think that can be a good start. And once we start it off and lay the foundation or continue to lay the foundation, I really do believe that Black women, which we already know, are very magical. And we just got to keep being magical. Yeah. in our own different ways yeah. and, and, and even like when you talk about the table we get to the table we talk we eat whatever then we get up and nobody does anything we need to start cooking enough food so that everybody. there's leftovers when we get up yeah. from the table yeah. okay i like that it's too many times where we just get oh i've had enough and everything is gone and we get up we don't have anything to show for it we need some leftovers. This is a time when leftovers are good because the people who need to hear what's going on at the table so that we can start making some changes aren't necessarily at our table, and that's okay. Yep. That's why we got yep. the left. Uh, but my, my question for you, Courtney, is given all of this, and in a few more years, you're going to be a doctor, and you're probably going to continue in this higher ed realm. What makes you want to continue the work at a PWI? I know that there are going to be Black students in the future who are not going to get the opportunity, for whatever reasons, to go to HBCUs, just like I didn't get that opportunity. I want to make sure that those students who choose or have to go to PWIs still get a very good collegiate experience. So for me, it's more about how do I make sure I leave as much as a legacy as I can, as many resources behind, or simply just a representation to be able to possibly be a faculty member at a PWI where we don't really exist in those spaces mm-hmm. will help maybe just one or five or 10 Black young women or Black young males see that it's possible And I think that's the motivation that I have to keep going, to know that if they see me and other people like me trying to pursue a PhD or any type of doctoral education, first and foremost, regardless of where it is, that gives them motivation to think about, hey, maybe once I'm done with a bachelor's, I may want to pursue a master's. And once I pursue a master's, I might want to be a doctor one day. I think all of I think representation is one of the most important things when we're talking about what I like to call doing a generational shift. And in order to create a generational shift, we have to be able to show those who are coming behind us that it is possible. Because I think with media and everything that is shown in the news and in the newspaper, everything that they're reading, everything that they're hearing, it sometimes can be so exhausting that you give up before you even start the process. Right. So to be able to show them that it's possible, it's not easy, but it's possible. I think that's the motivation behind it. Well, right. Because you can't be what you can't see. 
right? You, 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 you can't, you can't do that unless you know that it's possible. And so it, there's an onus and a responsibility that comes when we step into these roles, wherever level, whatever we do, there's a responsibility. And I think you said it, you're in the most powerful way in that we have to remember why we're there and we have to help the people. We have to. So, um, so we're coming to a close on our questions, but we have a a couple left. Um, it's listen the conversation is always the bottom part, part two to this one really? right this is a part no. this is a it's got to yeah. be a part two it's mm-hmm. part three four five and right. uh point five because it it, it 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 was getting intense so as the last like couple of like three questions that we ask all of our all of our guests um to kind of really think about so maybe the first question is um what music, what music or songs are you listening to uh, to keep you focused and lifted, especially when we talk about the topics that we've talked about in this podcast? Like, what are you listening to? What is keeping you moving? What's keeping you going right now? Um, I am really big on hip hop and rap music, uh, all different types of hip hop, rap music, trap music included. Uh, that's real in the space that I'm in now um I've been going back to a lot of Nas and a lot of Lauryn Hill um old school throwback type of they're 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 touching on things that we're experiencing now um in society and a lot of times in the field of being in academics as well I'm also a really big fan of Bob Marley I think Bob Marley speaks to everyone's heart if you give him the opportunity to do so I think those would be my three every now and then I gotta throw a little Migos in there just a little you know pump up type head in the campus yep uh (laughs) yes so I would anything hip-hop and rap I I like it um I love Tupac um yeah okay okay so bars right textbooks that's fine but like what are you reading what are you kind of intaking that's kind of feeding your soul in addition to the music so I fell in love with hip-hop as a kid I remember hot summer days in Detroit um growing up we used to have local artists and the local artists at the time of when I was coming up was the boy cash out um the boy cash out and blade icewood um I remember as a child I was the only child growing up um, my parents later had a child 18 years later. So the point of that is that I had older cousins. So I was listening to music and lyrics at a young age that I probably should not have been listening to. Um, but I think that just seeing them dance and do the Blay Icewood dance and Doughboy Cash Out is when I was like, oh my gosh, like, I like this. This is a thing. It just, it brings a sense of warmth. Um, to the community, especially when it's hot outside, you eat a popsicle or some ice cream, you're sitting on your grandma's porch. That's like old school throwback. That's when I fell in love with hip hop. As far as books, I'm currently reading Why Do All the Black Kids Sit in the Cafeteria Together by <laughs> Dr. Beverly Taysom. Yes. And let me tell y'all, I've had this book on my shelf for probably a couple of years. I've skimmed through it a few times, but I'm actually reading it because I am co-teaching with one of the faculty members on campus, an undergraduate class called Race and Higher Education. And that's the required text that yes. we're um, yes. asking our students to read. So I've oh, been kind of spending a lot of time, like, you know, engaging with the text. And I'm just like, oh my gosh, everybody needs to read this book. Mm-hmm. Um, in Thank honor of Tony Morris, I'm sorry, go ahead. Have you read it before, or is this your first time reading it? This is my first time fully engaging with the content. I have skimmed it before, but this is the first time that I'm actually reading cover to cover. And I have, like, the updated version. So she's talking about a 2016 election with Donald Trump. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. See, I read it. Get that version. 
I read the first one like when I first got into higher ed eight, nine years ago. And I think I saw your tweet and I was like, oh, let me go read this again. But it's an updated version. Oh, okay. it's an updated version with like 60 pages of like new information. She's talking about Black Lives Matter, mm. um, Trayvon Martin, Mike Brown. She's talking about, and she's making it all come full circle. So um, it's really, really good. The second book I would say in honor of Toni Morrison celebrating her life, I would say The, the Source of Self-Regard. Um, it's a nice little book with some short essays, but there's one essay particularly, let me see, where she's talking about her experience being um, going through academics. Um, academics. So I like it because she points out a lot of good in her Toni Morrison way, calling stuff out that we talk about all the time when we sit at the table. So the name of the chapter is called, let me get to uh, Race Matters is the name of the chapter. It's a nice, sweet, soft, but in your face type of essay where by the time you get to the end of the last word, you like, dang, she just said it all. She literally just said it all. So I would say those would be my, my top two books right now. Okay, I like it. I feel yeah. like I'm going to get a couple of them because I'm a, I love audio books. So if she can read it to me, even better. Like, oh, oh, oh Lord, she did it <laughs> Give it to me. So, so kind of with that, as you kind of think about this podcast and you've listened to it before, even today, what does this podcast mean to you? I think for me, it means community. And I think for people who identify as Black, um community is what really matters for us and community is where we get our strength from our support from our knowledge from um i've listened to a couple of the podcasts before and um i'm like wow i never thought about it from this perspective um so i think that this is a sense of this podcast serves as a sense of a network that can be used for women identifying as black women period all different types of people um i think that this is really a good source resource and an educational tool that we can use on top of that you all are so wonderful and i can just from the time that i got on i'm like oh my gosh i rock with them like y'all are authentic and real and i think sometimes when we're navigating spaces whether it's pwi being in higher education, period. Education can be exhausting within itself. If you in K-12, if you in higher ed, private, public, whatever, it's exhausting. So to be able to connect with authentic people that you can just keep it 100% real with, I think that's that's love. That's, that's, that's Black love right there. Oh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Unless you say black love is real love, so you better know it. <laughs> black love is real love. Oh, I'm hearing Mary J. Real love. <laughs> you gotta dance like it. Hey, hey. Real love. Sorry, sorry. Oh, sorry. I done went off, y'all. I done went off topic. Y'all. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And lastly, a last question. Um. Um, we've asked you to, you know, send us um, a name of a Black woman who you want to honor today. So if you could just share with us the name of the Black woman you want to celebrate and why. Yes. So the woman that I would like to celebrate, the Black strong woman that I would like to celebrate today would be my mother, my mama, uh, Kenna Coker. Um, I want to celebrate her because she has sacrifice she has been the definition of what sacrificing means um she has in a lot of ways put herself aside to provide opportunities for me mm -hmm. and I can honestly say that I wouldn't be where I am today if she didn't sacrifice or love me the way that she did or instilling me the lessons that she did it was tough some days I'm just like, ooh, my mama, my mama, my mama. But without her, um, I think that, I don't know. I love my mama, and I'm very, very thankful and proud um, to be her daughter. And I'm, I'm very grateful that she continues to support me. Like, mom is upstairs, like, now, like, cooking dinner. 
So I'm like, Mom, I'm coming home. I got to do this, you know, podcast, whatever. She's like, okay, I'll make sure you got some chicken. And that's like, those little things matter. Like, they matter. Yes. So I, I wonder if my mama cook me some chicken if I talk to her. Wait her up just a little bit. Just a little bit. <laughs> so. That is awesome. Oh, I love my mama too. Oh. Yes. Mm. Yes. Moms are the amazing, amazing. Yes. Well, we just want to just thank you so much for your time, your energy, your scholarly advice, your critique. And we are just excited um, for what is to come in this conversation and also what is to come with you, Dr. Um, Morris. I'm Ooh. excited about it. See, we're going to speak that into existence yes. right there. I accept. I accept. Doctor, <laughs> come on. You're going to be in this position and you're going to each one reach one. So many people. I mean, I'm just thinking that. about so many people that are going to be blessed by your work. And so many people that are going to look up to you and say, you know what? I can make it. Like I see somebody who looks like me, who, who is just authentically them. Um, and I think that is the most powerful thing we can do as black women. So thank you. I appreciate that. Like I said, thank y'all for the opportunity. Um, I look forward to seeing what's next and in store for you all. Like I'm rooting for y'all on Twitter. I retweet everything. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Everybody listen to the podcast. This is really, really great. And I am, um, I'm proud to see black women doing their thing. Like I really am proud and I can't wait to see what's next for you all. Thank you for listening to episode 10 of black women voices. We hope you have enjoyed our conversation with Courtney B. Morris. If this is your first time listening, remember to check out the first nine episodes on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and SoundCloud. Be sure to share and rate the shows. Thank you for tuning in.